Oh, yay. Oh, yay. This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike. Brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. It's been a busy few weeks at the court. So busy, in fact, that we have two guests here today to unpack it all. We're going to start with the action at the court itself, where they have been making up for lost time with the release of four opinions last week, as well as a couple of big grants for next term. Then we're going to head down the street, so to speak, to talk about the president's nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to succeed Justice Stephen Breyer. Joining me to kick this off is the blog's media editor, Katie Barlow. Katie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Amy. This is always fun. It is. So I'm going to immediately turn the mic around on you, which is my favorite thing to do. As you said, we got four opinions, three probably worth delving into, and dealer's choice. Are we starting with state secrets? Are we starting with the Kentucky abortion law? Or are we starting with the Boston Marathon bomber? We'll start with the Kentucky abortion law, which of course wasn't really about Kentucky abortion law. Um, this was a case called Cameron versus EMW Women's Center. And the Supreme Court ruled that the Kentucky Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, not David Cameron, as the syllabus initially said when the Supreme Court released it on Thursday, the former Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, but Daniel Cameron should have been allowed to intervene to defend a state law restricting abortion when the state's state's health secretary declined to do so. Uh, This is sort of complicated facts arising from a change in leadership after elections. The state's attorney general earlier in the litigation had been a Democrat who bowed out of the case, said he would leave enforcement of the law to the state's health secretary, who at the time was a Republican. And then after an election, everybody switched places. The health secretary was a Democrat, The attorney general was a Republican, Daniel Cameron. When the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit struck down the law and the health secretary, again, now a Democrat, said he wasn't going to defend the law anymore, then the attorney general, Cameron, wanted to intervene. And the Supreme Court on Thursday, by a vote of eight to one, said he could. This was not entirely surprising after the oral argument, but it certainly wasn't a surprise after the oral argument's in the Supreme Court involving a similar issue, whether Arizona and a group of Republican-led states could intervene to defend a Trump-era immigration policy after the Biden administration no longer wanted to do so. There was a moment in that oral argument where Justice Stephen Breyer sort of referred to this case and seemed to suggest that it had already been decided and that they had ruled for the attorney general and everyone sort of perked up. But Justice Samuel Alito wrote the decision in this case. He said states have a strong interest in defending their laws. And in this case, Cameron moved quickly once he knew that the health secretary wasn't going to defend the law to intervene. So Justice Sonia Sotomayor was the lone dissenter in the case She said, whenever there's a change in administrations now, this court's decision creates an opening for officials to undo litigation decisions by their predecessors. So there could be a little bit of chaos. And the effect of that decision, the the lower courts did in fact say that it violated the constitution and the law is essentially on hold. But the effect of this decision is now they just get to keep having that battle 
while maybe there is a regime change in our understanding of the constitutional right to choose to have an abortion, but the law is still on hold. The effect of this decision is they can keep battling it out. That's exactly right. Okay, so next decision, Poland. I'll go to state secrets in Poland, a case called United States versus Zubaida. It's the case of a Palestinian man U.S. officials believed was a high-level Al-Qaeda official in the post-September 11th era. And they captured him in Pakistan, held him overseas at several black sites, and subjected him to enhanced interrogation, a.k.a. torture. And so now he is in court trying to get information from two CIA contractors who he said supervised his interrogation so that he can use the information from the CIA contractors in a criminal investigation in Poland. And the federal government says that the information is protected by something called the state secrets privilege, which is a doctrine that allows the government to withhold information and litigation when disclosing it would compromise national security. And the government made the argument that although people already knew it had already been disclosed that this detention site where Zubaida had been held was in Poland, for CIA contractors even to confirm or deny that fact would harm national security, and the Supreme Court agreed. Uh, we got an interesting dissent by Justice Neil Gorsuch, joined by Justice Sonia Sotomayor, two justices from opposite ends of the ideological spectrum. Justice Gorsuch described in some detail the torture that Zubaida had suffered, sort of lamented what he described as the trend toward overclassification of information. He talked about a memo that the government tried to classify in which you had two senior military officials talking about overclassification of information. He said what the government's argument really boils down to in this case is that they're trying to avoid embarrassment. You brought that out in your piece for SCOTUS blog, the bit that he has at the end saying, it seems like the government is just trying to delay or, or, or not get involved here because they are embarrassed about the deeds of the past. And he says there is no state secret here. Um, and joined by Sotomayor, uh, that was a powerful ending to that pretty strong dissent, I'd say. Um, so the effect of that decision is the state secrets privilege stands and Zubaida will not be able to bring in that information in the in the criminal investigation in Poland. Do you want to get into the fracture of the majority opinion? Frequently, many times you have sort of a simple 7263 decision. You know, in this case it was not not quite as simple. The the syllabus looked as some people said on Twitter, kind of like one of these LSAT logic games where you know you had justices joining parts of decisions, but not others. And it was particularly striking when you actually looked at the ruling on the page. There were some parts of the decision that were you know, designated as part you know, 3B or whatever that were literally just a single paragraph. You, you had justices agreeing or disagreeing with, with very specific parts of the decision but not with, with other parts. And so they really had to sort of struggle to put together a majority, but, but they did. They did. And I was looking for something else in this case, and I was going back to listen to oral argument. And there was a moment during oral argument where 
in hindsight, now it's quite clear the Gorsuch Sotomayor alliance that was forming in this case kind of came out when Gorsuch was questioning the government's lawyer and said, why don't you just let Zubaida testify? Will you will you let Zubaida testify and let him say this is what happened to me and this is where it happened? And then, you know, the jury or the judge or whoever can decide the veracity. And the government's lawyer said, you know, we haven't that hasn't been requested. And so we aren't going to you know, address that here. And now I don't have an answer for you. And Gorsuch pushed and said, this has been going on for how many years? And you never considered an off-ramp. This is an off-ramp for the government to not have to deal with this. And uh, and then Sotomayor joined in quite, quite quickly after that saying, you know, will you allow him to testify and not assert state secrets privilege over his testimony? And the two of them kind of had a moment of intensity with the government's lawyer about that. So that alliance kind of came out in hindsight now, I listened back to that this week when I was looking for something else. So I thought I thought that was interesting. It's always clearer in hindsight. So that leaves us with Sarnayev, the Boston Marathon bomber, who now is facing a death sentence. Yes. So he was sentenced to death by the jury. The Court of Appeals threw out his death sentence on two separate grounds. They said that the trial judge should have specifically asked all of the potential jurors, what media coverage they had heard or seen about the case, and the district court should have allowed Zarnayev to introduce evidence at sentencing about his brother's involvement in a separate triple murder to show that his brother, who was older than he was, was the ringleader, so to speak. So the Supreme Court reversed on both of those grounds. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote for the majority. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote a dissent that was joined by Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Justice Elena Kagan for the most part, and the death sentences will be reinstated. So that's a big week for national security, uh, for criminal law, and for you, Amy, covering all of these cases. (laughs) It was a busy week, but on the other hand, sometimes you have these weeks in this time of year when you get some of the lower profile cases. And so it's nice to get some of these higher profile cases decided yeah, (laughs) rather than getting them all in the last week of June. Yeah, right. A little bit of a break. So before we put the mic back um, in your hands, we are going to ask you some questions that we've gotten from SCOTUS blog readers and listeners. I'm going to start with the first one that uh, I understand we've gotten um, various versions of, and this is part of our, our Q&A segment. So the first question today comes from Linda in Houston, and she asks, I know the Dobbs case was heard in December. I'm just wondering if anyone knows when the justices had their private discussion and vote. I'm assuming this can't be a total secret if their opinions are shared and discussed before the actual decision is released in June. So the justices would have had their private discussion and vote that week in which they heard the oral argument. The opinion would have been assigned at that conference or shortly thereafter. The senior justice in the majority gets to assign the majority opinion and the senior justice in the dissent gets to assign the dissenting opinion. And It does seem kind of crazy to people who do not follow the court on a regular basis, but the outcomes of these high profile cases almost always remain a closely guarded secret until they are 
issued, you know, in the good old days before COVID, when the we came to the point at which the Chief Justice would say on the bench, Justice so-and-so has the opinion in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, or now when we all are hitting refresh on our laptops and iPads at home and the opinion pops up. It's, it's very, very rare for there to be a leak. Really only the justices and their clerks have any idea what's going on and they keep it very, very closely held. You hope the opinion pops up when you hit refresh constantly. We had a bit of a snag last <laughs> week with uh, one of the opinions in the PDF showing, at least in Chrome, I couldn't get it to come up, uh, but uh, I think uh, some other users were. But so, all right. So our second question is from David in Ashburn, Virginia, and he asks, we have entered a new era of oral arguments where we suddenly don't seem to care about time. The seriatim segment appears to be untimed as opposed to its first iteration last term. And the chief sometimes lets non-seriatim sequencing happen during seriatim. And we see that the argument is sometimes longer than two hours, even when another argument awaits that morning. So he also says, doesn't this beg for the return of a morning session and an afternoon session? Meanwhile, the court skews quite a bit older. Don't these folks ever have to go to the bathroom? So yes, the the justices since they, really since the start of the pandemic, under the seriatim questioning, the format that they used when they were operating over the telephone, the oral arguments tended to go long. And then when they returned to the courtroom and they started to use this hybrid format where they have the free-for-all for 30 minutes, roughly followed by the seriatim questioning, the arguments have gone even longer. Uh, and so you do have these oral arguments that, that can, you know, theoretically are 60 or 70 minutes, depending on exactly how many parties are participating in them, but can wind up being more like two and a half or three hours. And the justices sort of soldier on. We did have, though, last week in the climate change cases, there were four lawyers arguing. And for the first time that I can remember, the chief justice announced sort of mid-argument, we're going to take a five-minute break. And everyone sort of stood up and for the most part, just kind of milled around and took a stretch break. But it did look like Justice Breyer stepped out for a few minutes and then returned. But it is very impressive. You know, I, I assume that there is, not to get too technical here, like a restroom nearby behind the curtain that the, just, that the justices could step out quickly. You know, for reporters, if you want to leave and come back, it's actually a pretty involved process. You'd have to leave, find a bathroom, and go back through security. So you would, would miss a fair amount of the argument. I try to sort of set myself up for success so that I don't have to leave <laughs> and come back. That's part um, that they don't teach you in journalism school. Exactly. You know, I feel it's it's kind of like, I actually said to my husband, it's kind of like when I was like, you're getting ready for a road race or something. You want to hydrate. Yeah, that's exactly uh, Because you're right. going to be in there for a while. You want to hydrate. You want to caffeinate, but not, not too, too much. much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, the justices, of course, we're not allowed to bring coffee or water into the courtroom. The justices can if they want. And some of them do at times, you know, not only bring a beverage, 
but get refills. And sometimes like remember during the vaccine argument, watching one of them get a refill and thinking, are you sure you really want to do that? <laughs> but, you know, apparently they've got better stamina <laughs> than I do. Yeah. Well, also David from Ashburn, Virginia must not have listened to oral arguments during COVID times because we oh. in fact did get confirmation <laughs> <laughs> that at least one of them <laughs> uses the restroom during oral argument, perhaps more efficiently. Um, all right. Those are our questions, which we'll have more of. And thank you to our readers and our listeners for taking the time to send those in. If you have questions about the Supreme Court, please write us at scotustalk at scotusblog.com or leave us a voicemail at 202-596-2906. And Amy, thank you for letting us turn the mic around. Thanks as always. Joining us now to discuss Judge Jackson's nomination is Dean Danielle Holly Walker. She's the Dean and Professor of Law at Howard University School of Law. Dean Holly Walker, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start by taking you back a year. What was your reaction when the president and then he was then candidate Biden promised to nominate a Black woman if he were elected? You know, I was really excited, as I think many people were, uh, when I heard then-candidate Biden make that promise to appoint a Black woman to the Supreme Court. Um, as we know, uh, the legal profession is one of the least diverse, racially diverse professions. We're less diverse than medicine and engineering. Only 5% of lawyers are African-American. And I considered, you know, the makeup of the Supreme Court, to me, was a sign that this door was closed to Black women. Um, having a Black woman never be on the court after 200 plus years, 115 justices appointed, was a sign that there was still racial and gender discrimination as to appointments on the Supreme Court because a Black woman had never been nominated. And we know that there were many Black women in the years of Supreme Court appointments who have been qualified to be on the Supreme Court, but never got that nomination. So I thought, him making that pledge was really a commitment to ending the discrimination that had been in place in terms of Supreme Court nominations and saying now the road to Supreme Court nomination is open to all, including Black women. So talk a little bit about the significance of the moment when he came out with the vice president, who's the first female vice president. She's a Howard graduate, the first Black vice president, and then standing there with Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first Black woman nominated to sit on the court. It was really a historic moment. And I think for many people, and I heard people of all different races and backgrounds say, you know, it was an emotional moment, I think, because it is a representation that we are at a place where there shouldn't be any barrier to any part of any field due to race and gender. And so while some, I think, interpreted it the opposite way, President Biden's promise as kind of a, a hearing people use the term like racialized affirmative action, what I saw was the opposite, was hundreds of years of doors being closed, and now the door was open, having a woman of color standing next to him as vice president, and another woman of color on the opposite side standing next to him as Supreme Court nominee should be a message, I think, to everyone in our country that, you know, 
there is not a, there isn't a place too high or too far reaching in this country for you to go. As long as you have, you know, the accomplishments and the ability to get there, that the doors are open. And even though this is only one door, right, it's only one uh, nomination, it was a very powerful moment. And I thought Judge Jackson's kind of comments in that moment were, were really fitting for the historic nature. Talk a little bit more about those comments. Like what, what did you think was particularly fitting? What resonated with you? So a couple of things resonated with me. Number one was her paying tribute to the judges she clerked for. So she did three clerkships and obviously the last one being for Justice Breyer and hearing her uh, give tribute to the judges who she had worked for. And then probably the moment that resonated with me the most and the one where I was getting lots of text messages from friends um, around the country, many legal academics, but also friends and family who are non-lawyers, was her talking about Constance Baker Motley, um, the first Black woman to ever be on the federal judiciary and a woman of such tremendous accomplishment um, that she clearly could have been nominated to the Supreme Court if anyone had ever thought of nominating a Black woman to the Supreme Court when she was uh, in the judiciary. So that was a very powerful moment because it was something she did not have to do, right? That was her moment as nominee. And she could have spent the entire time talking about, as she did, her values, her family, the people she had worked with. And in that moment, she took the opportunity to really, I think, shine a spotlight on a, and I think put to um, in some ways very subtly kind of indicate while I'm the first one to be nominated, I shouldn't have been the first one to be nominated. We should have already broken this barrier because there were other women who were supremely qualified to be nominated who never were. And the fact that they share a birthday is also just was very special for her to acknowledge um, that she shares a birthday with Constance Baker Motley. It made the whole thing seem fitting for her to for her to really be receiving the nomination on that day. Yeah, she talked about standing on the shoulders of women like Judge Motley. Um, and then she talked about sort of her role potentially in history, the idea that young people today or in the future would look back and sort of stand on, on her shoulders. So what are you hearing from the students at Howard and, and about what the nomination means to them? It's really interesting. So Howard's Law School is actually about 70% Black women. So we have a student body that is a little over 90% people of African descent, but the gender uh, dynamic is such that about 70% of our students are women. So I lead a law school that's full of Black women faculty, students, staff. And for them, I think it's a it's a powerful moment. It's a, there's a little bit of trepidation, right? I think to see how she will be treated. Um, will she be treated with fairness? Will she be treated with respect? Um, will there be racist attacks against her? So I think there's both a celebration, but there's a caution and a trepidation to see how in this most important moment she will be treated and a fear that she will somehow be mistreated. But I know that um, she's up to the moment, obviously, even in the even in the face of attacks, as we've seen in the last 
few days, uh, unwarranted calls for her to, for example, release her LSAT scores, things that we never hear for other uh, nominees to the Supreme Court. So I think that's what my students are most, you know, watching for is the way that uh, the nomination process will work for her. We held a incredible symposium, a short, a short session for the Howard University overall community and had a huge response. Um, we had a panel of Black women law professors, um, including, I think, Tiffany Wright, who's been on uh, SCOTUS before. And it was, it was a wonderful moment to have four Black women law professors talking about the first Black woman nominee with all of these students who are from that background and knowing that we are such a small part of the profession, but we are opening more and more doors every day. Dean Holly Walker, thanks so much for thanks so much for coming on to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Katie, you wrote about the last confirmation process for SCOTUS blog. What can we expect from a process standpoint in the next two weeks? Well, hopefully we won't have um, a really truncated timeline that uh, puts pressure on the Supreme Court press corps while everything else is happening at once uh, and also a COVID breakout in the Senate. Hopefully we have avoided all of that drama and maybe this will be the lowest key confirmation uh, in history. We shall see how that goes. Uh, but the train's on the track. We know the confirmation hearing will begin um, on March 21st and it is four days, right? It'll be four days um, for that process. So what I delved into, there's always something with a confirmation hearing and for Judge Jackson, she will um, if successful, be confirmed by the longest running evenly divided Senate in American history. Um, Ooh, that's a good statistic. It is because it creates these weird uh, questions about quorum and Senate procedure. And so what I walked through are questions that are, come up on, in the two phases of her confirmation. So phase one, obviously, is the advice and consent interpretation um, by the Senate, which is we'll let the Judiciary Committee take a look at her first, review the materials, and then advance the nomination to the floor, and then the full Senate vote. So looking at part one with an evenly divided Senate, that means an evenly divided Senate Judiciary Committee, 11 to 11. And so the, the question there is, well, what if the committee splits uh, on the vote along party lines? And typically that would um, likely doom a nomination, but here they had to agree kind of the rules of the road before they went into it, what would happen if there was a committee split vote. And there's an organizing resolution, Senate Resolution 27, where the Senate agreed that if there is a split vote, then the majority leader can basically call the full Senate to vote to get that person out of committee. It's basically like a get out of jail vote if you think oh. of committee as jail. So the Senate would vote and they just need a simple majority to get her nomination put on the executive calendar essentially. Um, so get out of jail, but don't get to pass, go and collect confirmation yet. That basically just puts her on the confirmation calendar. And then the second question, and this is the trickiest one of them all is a quorum issues in committee. And there are two rules that govern, this is the nerdiest of nerdy um, getting into Senate rules. That's um, what we're here for. I, <laughs> there are two different rules that govern Senate, two different sets of rules. There are committee rules and Senate rules. And the parliamentarian cares about Senate rules. So if a committee rule um, 
goes against a Senate rule, the Senate rule Trump trumps basically. Um, and so the Senate rule says that a majority of the committee needs to be present to, to conduct business basically. The Senate Judiciary Committee rule says not only a majority, but you need two minority members to be present. Um, and you may recall that the Democrats denied uh, Chairman, then Chairman Lindsey Graham, a quorum when they advanced the nomination of Justice Barrett, but he was able to strong arm that through the committee because he had a majority in on the committee. He had a majority present. That complies with Senate rules, so that checked the box. Um, that's not available to the majority here because they're split evenly 11-11. So technically, if the Republicans wanted to, they could deny quorum to the Democrats to be able to transact business. And that means advancing a nominee. Um, it's not looking like that's going to happen um, because uh, Chuck Grassley has said that, you know, he'll be there, he'll do his job, he'll listen to what she has to say. Um, that's not a promise that he'll be there for the vote. Um, so I, that could get a little hairy, but it, it's it's just not looking like the Republicans are gonna spend the, the political capital to do that. So um, those are those are the primary issues getting her out of committee. And then looking at the full Senate, if the Senate splits 50-50, as you know, there was Twitter conversation and lots of conversation about whether the vice president would be able to cast the tie-breaking vote. And there is at least some precedent. Um, there's, there's, there's no indication that she wouldn't be able to cast the tie-breaking vote. And in fact, then Vice President Mike Pence cast uh, the tie-breaking vote to confirm an Eighth Circuit judge and vice president Harris has voted to invoke, I think it was to invoke cloture. She did a procedural vote to vote on a nominee, not the final confirmation vote. She didn't have to be the tiebreaker there, but so that's, those are the nuts and bolts. The committee. But the Biden administration is hoping it will not come down to that. They're actually hoping that they'll pick up two or three Republican senators. Right. And perhaps that was part of their thinking when they selected this nominee who has already polled three Republican votes. Um, less than a year ago. Yeah, less than a year ago, which she was quickly, just like Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she was quickly able to update her disclosures because it wasn't that long ago Not that, that she work. disclosed. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but look, it's looking like, uh, famous last words, but it's looking like things are, are going smoothly. <laughs> Um, and that it won't be a big fight, but you know, you never know. And there is the, there are a couple of procedural arrows in Republicans quiver that they can use if they want to. All right. Well, two weeks. We'll see what happens. We'll see. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Eleanor Erskine, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser. That was a real, real, real nerd monologue. Oh, but it was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> like, rules. The Senate rules. <laughs>